So, welcome to another week. Welcome to uh, another week, another day. This is the week. Another episode. This is the week. This is the year. This is the day. (laughs) (laughs) Man, so right now, this would be coming out in March. Yeah. And so far, I haven't really been wowed by anything that's really been in theaters. Yeah. Just like in general or like this year so far? Just just in general. I mean, the the last... Last movie at the time that we're doing this that I saw would have been okay. If we're not counting online, yeah, uh, would probably be the turning, which is oh my God. okay. Then again, it's January when stuff comes out in January. You don't yeah. expect it to. Well, it's either it's either it's January for like the wide release of like December Oscar bait or just like wide releases of like really shitty horror films. Yes. Yeah. 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 But I sort of. I I wanted to sort of chat about I guess our favorite our our favorite screenings because this has come up in conversation a lot over the last few weeks um, because I was having the same discussion with somebody about how a lot of the movies being released this month were just like shit shows we're just garbage know? yeah we're just garbage yeah um and uh yeah so what what I guess what what is one of your well, okay. So are we doing it from a festival perspective or from a personal experience perspective? Doing it anything, anything, any sort of audience, any audience that is sort of like- Okay, really so so I'm going to divide this in two different realms. So sure. actually, no, three. Sure. Um, one where it's just personal and, I'm, and there's nobody really in the theater. Uh-huh. Uh, then there's the one where, you know, you're with a full crowd and everything. Yeah. And third one will be um, the, fest- the festival one. Great. So the one where I kind of went, alone yeah. and there wasn't that many people was serenity because <laughs> I knew at the time after the first weekend, everybody said it was awful. Yeah. And I went in, I didn't know the twist of what was going on. There was maybe about it. six people in the theater. And when the twist happened, I kind of burst out laughing and everybody else in the theater was kind of snickering along because we did not expect that whatsoever. And I it was such a de- it. it's such a delight. And to be honest, well, oh it's God. kind of a spoiler that I've told you that there's a twist, but I don't want to go okay. beyond that because it really is a lot of fun. Okay. And you really should see it. Watch it with watch it with people who haven't seen it either. Don't don't watch the trailer, don't look at anything, just go and embrace it. I think it's on isn't it on like Amazon Prime? It now? is on Amazon Prime. There you go. There you go. I would say uh a very memorable one is when um there was a standing ovation Yes. At a, uh, at the, um, opening night screening of Grown Ups 2. Wait, what? I kid you not. Wait, like you so, went to, you went to a Cineplex on yeah. like a Thursday, Friday? A Friday night. Friday night. To see Grown Ups 2. Yeah. And there's a standing ovation. I'll never forget it. A like st- a standing, like giving the, the standing credits ovation? rolled and there were people, there's one guy. That stood up and started and started clapping, and then like his row, which I assume maybe is people he knew, but then people in my row, and that How definitely didn't old know this were guy. these people. Uh, I would say like mid to late forties. Well, that explains it. <laughs> that explains. Well, I mean, that is Sandler's crowd. That is who he's yeah, appealing yeah. to. Yeah, it was it was amazing. It was that, and then um, there's another screening of uh, oh my god of um, oh of uh, Avengers Endgame. Oh yeah, yeah, so more, so more recently. Game. Yeah, like for for me in terms of that giant crowd doing the whole Thursday night preview thing. Yeah, Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. Uh, that was yeah. an experience because I yeah. remember when Episode One came out. Yeah, and there was the huge hubbub. Oh my gosh, first Star Wars movie in God knows how long. Right, and this is the first one of this new generation. Right, and even on first watching, I was kind of iffy on it, okay. but 
like the crowd itself, the energy is something that, you know, you just can't forget. Well, yeah, because like the crowd and the energy and uh, the energy of the audience is essentially what can make or break a movie, yeah. right? So you're watching something that's really shit, but then you're, um, the, the crowd is reacting in a way you didn't expect it, or they're laughing or they're crying or whatever it might be. Um, like I, I really wasn't expecting to like Bohemian Rhapsody and I didn't really enjoy it. Like I, the, the movie itself wasn't great, but when you're sitting in a row, including my dad, who was, um, who saw him live after his AIDS concert in Milan. Ah, okay. When, he, when I see him like jumping out of his seat, um, and I, I kid you not shedding a tear, but he, he claims he wasn't. Uh, that, that in itself brings about an experience for me, you know, or, or like the guy beside me was like tapping his feet and like grown ass man, just like clapping and everybody was enjoying it. So, you know, an audience can make or break it. And, and so when we talk about screenings and we talk about arguably the biggest failure, or in this case, maybe biggest success of, of, of 2019 being the one and only cats. Okay. Um, you could argue that, yeah, sure. It was a failure, but it also created this sort of like cult status and, uh, our guest today was responsible for, uh, from what I imagine, probably one of the first screenings for it. And um, like, I know, I know it was happening down in the States in the Alamo draft houses, but oh, in terms really? of starting it here in Toronto, yeah, this guy got it, got in on the ground floor. Oh, and, absolutely. And to be honest, by that time, I'd already seen it three times and I was so happy. <laughs> I was I'm happy, so happy that it existed. I'm happy the first time me seeing it was in that theater. <laughs> Because if I had known what was coming already, it wouldn't have been as great. And I don't even know if the movie was good or not. I have no idea. Like but I you have heard everybody, including me, rave about. Well, yes, it's so bad, it's good. In in terms of, well, it, it's all bad. It's all bad. Yeah. Let's all let's all agree. It's all bad. Okay. Well, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was all bad. I would say. It, I I would say that it's I, all bad in terms of all the decision makings. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, well, it's funny because James Corden and um, what's her name, the uh, the comedian, oh my God, Rebel mm-hmm. Wilson, Rebel yes. Wilson, at the Oscars came out in cat suits. How do you expect? How, who expected that? You know, and so the Razzies. Everybody, <laughs> well, everybody is on that train of sort of making fun of. Uh, but it, but it's sort of it's sort of funny for them because it's like they decided to do the project originally. Yeah, and I mean, in their defense, they probably didn't know how it would turn out, but. Still. Oh no, they they knew what was turning out. Tom Hooper, I don't know who decided to really give him the reins of a heavy CG musical, but that's beside the point. Anyway, so I, I guess- I wasn't expecting it to be bad though. The King's Speech, uh, The Danish Girl, those were all really good Danish movies. Girl is not good. I enjoyed Danish Girl. I enjoyed it. I thought we it was- We will argue about this afterwards. <laughs> anyway, so our guest today, Anthony, and I'm going to butcher his last name and I really don't want to. Oliviera. There we go. Oliviera. That's, Olivi- how, that's how it is. Oliviera. Okay. Anyway, PhD, dumpster raccoon. I'll let him explain. Cool. Let's do it. Hey, folks, do you need studio space, equipment, maybe somewhere to chill out and tackle that new idea you had a while back? Well, Astrolab Studios is the destination for all your pre-production, production, production, and post-production needs. Astrolab has flexible in-house studio and post-audio bookings. On-site equipment packages available so you can save time and money with experienced staff to ensure your production runs smoothly. They've been supporters of This Is The Year since day one, making this little dream of ours come true. So, why not show them some love? Visit astrolab.studio and make This The Year your project takes off. Vieira. 
I don't know if I got that right. I swear if I'm butchering it, I'm so sorry. I literally do not know if you are butchering it. My parents both <laughs> pronounce it differently. I always just say Oliveira, but there is like a, you can really put some Portuguese stink on it if you want to. <laughs> so, wait, so your parents are, are from Portugal or you just have that kind of... We're both, um, our family's from the Azores. So oh, yeah, interesting. We're, uh, which is sometimes people don't even, if you put your finger like smack in the middle of the Atlantic, there's a bunch of islands uh, where they basically just like have cows and my family killed whales for 400 years. Wow. I'm the first man in my family not to kill a whale. Um. (laughs) They came to Canada not to kill whales. Yeah, yeah. We were watching a documentary this weekend with my dad where they were like, blue whale killing was uh, banned in 1964. And my dad made this face because he knew he definitely went a little past 1964. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh yeah so we're it's basically portuguese they're like an autonomous region that's oh. a lot of background about my family history already no that's great <laughs> I, I mean i didn't expect to get that out of you but oh like, yeah i'm i am terrible at keeping secrets it's always dangerous to put me in front of a microphone oh man i better not reveal any anything <laughs> secret until later on yeah marvel comics will break my legs yeah there's we'll, there's, we'll get to that <laughs> Oh, okay. So, so let's start this out by uh, on your website. It's writer, PhD, dumpster raccoon. Let's kind of let's kind of dissect that. So, so the writer part, or actually, no, maybe the PhD part first. Uh, Yeah, I did a PhD in uh, 17th century literature. I wrote, um, oh, what was my title? Uh, Exit the King, uh, secularization. Oh God, I'm already forgetting it. Um, Secularization in the English Baroque. Um, so uh, the, my dissertation was about trying to make a case for a concept of the English Baroque because we don't usually use the idea of Baroqueness in English, um, which is a problem for um, anatomizing English literature. We sort of have like metaphysical poets and then like the cavalier poets and the Baroque is the way that most of Europe holds together its 17th century and it is not the way English does. And so I just wanted to think about why that is. Okay. Um, but I'm always interested in moments where cultures have to negotiate a common ethic between each other when they no longer have religion as a common ethic. So mm, maybe I believe in a Christian God and you don't. How are we going to have a culture? And the answer um, for a lot of Western culture is uh, uh, media. So maybe you and I don't believe in the same God, but we can both go see a Shakespeare play. Or yeah. maybe you and I don't believe in the same things, but we can watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that becomes a way for us yeah. to speak a similar language. Which I find is also very interesting in terms of how, uh, I'd say some, let's say religious ethics seep into that kind of media, that kind of culture. Yeah. Um, for me, in Hollywood, there's a lot of you know, characters who end up or act very Jewish, maybe in kind of that ethical way, be, uh, influenced by the studio heads, and who knows, but let's say more recently, just before we started this, we were talking about Uncut Gems and you said how, you know, your friend said it's the most Jewish film he's ever seen, <laughs> which is very interesting because although I see it more as it, this aspect of American Judaism on the fringes, like this character is Jewish, but he's not Jewish, mm-hmm. that he has all the markings of it. He has the the um, the telltale signs of it, you know, the Passover dinner the the kind of way he speaks, the cadence of his voice, the kind of aesthetic that he has, the way that he deals with business-wise. But he's not Jewish in terms of, he doesn't have those kind of ethics and morals that you'd right. expect. Or even like a religious sense, right? Like one exactly. of the things my dissertation was about is the way that um, 
the way we separate religion from culture is basically a product of a very specific, specifically waspy, like a very Protestant yeah. idea. Um, and it has very clear um, implications for the way our culture navigates itself because it does tend to think of the secular, the, the atheist is unmarked in ways that it is not. In fact, in many ways, what we think of as new atheism is actually kind of a post-Christian idea. Um, it's harder for us to see, but one of my favorite scholars on this is Charles Taylor um, out in Montreal. And because Taylor is working in the Catholic milieu, it's much more obvious when he draws his examples. So like in uh, Quebecois culture, it's like, well, we can't have religious symbols in, in um, secular spaces. Obviously, crucifixes and nun habits are fine, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Like this Christian norm, normalism or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, so, just, it's already ingrained within the wider uh, sect of secular culture, you know, it's totally fine. <laughs> Precisely. Even yeah. though you'll have all these minorities where, well, we're not represented and we don't appreciate that. And although we like this aspect of secularism, we also want to have that religious freedom. Yeah. And uh, for me, the flip side of this, I mean, I'm a queer writer, a queer artist, and I don't particularly believe in God. I mean, my answer to that changes from today. I definitely am not a practicing Catholic, whatever that means. But my brain is, the architecture of my brain is completely designed by having grown up in that milieu, right? Like yeah. I can say it, the mass. It's shaped back, by that culture, exactly. yeah. So a lot of my work, even though I'm like literally writing a comic book right now that's full of like, like scrolls and Cree, but like I read back the script I've written and it's like, why is this like scrawl warrior quoting from St. Paul? <laughs> like I don't even notice that I've done it. Or like, um, why is this superhero like not even realizing he's quoting from Milton Satan, right? Like our cultural inheritance is not necessarily connected to our religious beliefs. And that's sort of overlap and that imbrication, the way we become sort of these bits of things over time fascinates me. And it's sort of a, actually a function of the Baroque too. Like um, one of the things that these a lot of these princes did in the Renaissance was sort of assemble their wonder cabinets where it's like, here's a fancy shell and here's a narwhal tusk and here's this like um, parrot feather. Like your capacity to bring in artifacts from other cultures became itself kind of a signifier for culture in like the yeah. way we now think of like as appropriations, right? Yeah. Um, so what gets to be authentically us and what gets to be something that we stole is always something that fascinates me. Yeah. Um, there's something I read recently about how I think that Greece wants parts of the Parthenon back oh, from, yes, from the England. Elgin marbles. Yes, now that England is out <laughs> of the EU, they want their marbles back. Yeah. Uh, um, England loses its marbles over Brexit is the, uh. the headline I saw. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect to me. That's exactly the, the kind of cultural work I like to think about. I get accused by people who hate me on Twitter a lot for saying, like, I'm appropriating Christian culture when I do the work I'm doing. It's like, this was mine. Like, if Ex I can't use it, who can? Like, there are all these little intersections of, well, not just queer, but I'm also Portuguese. I'm also Christian. Right. I'm also this. Yeah. It's like, why can't I take from all the stuff that I've been? I mean, technically, I'm also a mutt. My grandparents, like some of which were Holocaust survivors, you know, Poland, Italy, Kazakhstan, Israel, France. Yeah, we're, um, I mean, what's the Elliot quote? We're all just kind of fragments shored against uh, our ruin. And you would like, know more than I do. I am not well read in that respect. Uh, well, I, it's just, um, I'm also a big fan of Anne Carson, a Canadian poet, and she has this great description at the beginning of her book, Autobiography of Red, where she talks about how sometimes literature is just like a shoebox full of scraps and like 
raw meat and you just shake it and pull out the pieces of it. And that to me sometimes feels like my own literary process where it's like, here's this like undigested bit of my Catholic trauma of being this like deeply closeted kid listening to these readings in church. (laughs) Now, now let's let me write, like I'm working on a book right now that's um, basically the gospels, but as told from the perspective of the apostle John, as like the beloved of Christ. I'm making air quotes. I'm always very bad at doing that. Oh, no, that's that's totally fine. Um, that's but totally it's fine. sort of this fragmented, um, St. Saint, St. John was like, he's also the guy that wrote the book of Revelation. So yeah. he sort of infamously loses his mind. And this is like his perspective. So this is your Jesus Christ superstar. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. I can't write music, so I'll just write traumas. <laughs> yeah. Hey, 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 you can pull You can pull your Andrew Lloyd Webberness and then uh, just, oh, come on. I love Andrew Lloyd Webber. You guys are I talking am not about a, I'm not screening. a, Oh, to be honest, I'm not a fan with the exception of Joseph because, oh, I mean, I come from a family of nerds. So Joseph was one of the only Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals that we actually right. liked because, yes, it's part of that Judeo-Christian kind uh-huh. of background. I can't stand Phantom. Not a huge fan of Cats. He did chess. I don't understand. No, chess isn't his. Chess isn't his. No, chess isn't his. Did, it did, sounds did, very Andrew Lloyd webber but it's not him. Well, I know I know it's a, a half of ABBA, but I thought he was also responsible for something. Oh, is he? That's news Maybe. to me. I don't Maybe. think I, so. He doesn't I, share well. He's very much yeah. like, he is the phantom, right? He thinks yes. of himself as the great maestro um, <laughs> down in the labyrinth writing his, I love phantom. Actually, you guys were talking about the scat, the cat's cat, woo. the cat, <laughs> the cat screening. The next one we're going to do as a sing along is actually Phantom of the Opera, the Joel Schumacher film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and oh. I want to do the same thing with like an open stage, like because um, Phantom. I mean, obviously, Phantom is one of those texts that also really appeals to queer audiences. Like it is sort of about being unlovable and like. There's an internet personality who's also a huge Phantom uh, Phantom of the Opera fan. I feel like. Um, you might know this person, Lindsay Ellis. Lindsay Ellis. Yes. Yes. God bless. If nothing else, I love the the gif of her being like, thanks, I hate it. It's, like that is, <laughs> yeah. Me and Lindsay have a similar, I think, tasteless appreci- appreciation yes. for Phantom. Yeah, um, she actually, she did a, sorry to interrupt. There's uh, There was a really great video that she did about the most whitewashed character in literary history. And it's the, um, um, the Persian? Uh, yes, the yeah, Persian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Phantom as a text, like, is the original novel is really a mess. Yeah. It comes out of the sort of the same tradition as Dracula. Like, it's sort of a found, like, nowadays we think of a it found as like a found footage yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And the Persian really gets the short end of the stick in the Phantom. I used to have, um, when I was a kid, I had a Todd McFarlane action figure of the Phantom of the Opera playset. Oh, the, the Freddy Krueger version or just? No, it was, did he they, did like a monster, a horror monster version. Oh, and the, okay. So like the Phantom. Lon Chaney sort of. Yeah, it had a, the Phantom himself had a very Lon Chaney face. It was like a, it was box five sitting on top of the organ and there's a Phantom action figure. And there was another figure who was clearly a pastiche of Raoul and the Persian, like a curved scimitar weapon and everything. Ooh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Uh, but anyway, so so that that idea of doing the sing along for Phantom. Like you saw the success of Cats and how everybody was just so into that. So it's like, "All oh, right, let's do another Andrew Lloyd Webber. Let's do another." No, I didn't order. even think about actually the Phantom is being programmed as part of a short uh, Joel Schumacher diptych, like a retro. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're doing fa- uh, Batman Forever the month before and then Phantom the month after that. Okay. Um my film program series is called Dumpster Raccoon because it's sort of, I think its job is to go into the dumpster of popular culture and find the things people have thrown out and decided are trash and 
see if there's something actually worth doing there. I mean, Cats was a perfect example of that, where yeah. it's like, nobody, I saw it the first time with, in a theater with four people in it. Um, and I was like, the problem isn't the movie, the problem is the audience. We need to find this an audience. So, yeah. so much of my job, I think, is to assemble the audience into a space. Yeah. And, and, and some of the films that you've done in the past, which, I mean, I'd, I'd love to attend, but it was only Cats. That was the first time that... <laughs> And I was just so fascinated and like, oh, thank God, somebody recognizes that there needs to be an audience for this. But some of the uh, past screenings that you've done, I think last month you did TMNT 2, Secret yep. of the Ooze. Secret of the Ooze. And you've done The Hunger. You've done- This um, month is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Ooh. Christmas was Gremlins, Christmas classic. Um, did, interview but, but with a Vampire, it, Hunger. Have people really discounted Gremlins? I thought everybody loves Gremlins. I wanted, everyone loves Gremlins, but not at the time. Like Gremlins, sometimes, oh, sometimes the oh, reason I oh, program the a time, film. Yeah. Okay. Gremlins is the movie that broke the back of the rating system. Like uh, parents hated it because it was It was too between violent. that and like Temple of Doom. Because, yeah. So yeah. because of that, we actually have PG-13 as a rating. Yeah. Um, because it's too, it's, what I love about Gremlins is it, again, talking about the Baroque, like it's kind of a tragic comedy. Like actually we had a woman who had obviously taken something before the screening and she was delighted by the Mogwai sections. But then when the Gremlins hit, it was too violent for her. We had to, <laughs> had to help her out. So I'm fascinated by these movies that don't play neatly into genre lines. Yeah. Uh, and so, so what's the fascination with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, other than the, other than the, um, what, what's his name? The Brian Adams song. Oh, everything I do, I do, do it for you. It was going to be I my sister's wedding song. I hate that song. <laughs> I honest to God hate that song. That, okay, well, there you go. So why do you hate that song? I don't know. I just don't like Brian Adams' voice. Between that, Summer of 69, I just can't. I don't know what it is about his voice. Um, so there you go. Like, it's a thrown out bit of popular culture. Yeah. But to me, I grew up, I'm 35, and um, Robin Prince of Thieves was like the movie you watched on VHS. Like, it was... It was who, one of those who first thought VHS that Kevin Costner would be this bankable movie star. I don't think even, I mean, famously he hated, um, he felt like Alan Rickman was showboating and like he cut a lot of Rickman's stuff cause it made him look bad. <laughs> uh, but I, Robin and Prince of Thieves, I programmed because I was literally watching, um, Donald Trump's sp official spiritual advisor giving a talk. Oh, and she's like this, oh no. she comes out of this old school prosperity gospel evangelical um, system. And I was like, oh my God, like she's fully the witch from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And Trump is like fully the, the, the sheriff. sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. So I was like, I want to see the movie again. And I want to see what happens when you put it in front of um, an audience that has the same nostalgic fondness that I did. Yeah. So we have a performer beforehand, Prince Johnny is performing. And we also have, um, a roving bard who's going to be playing the squeeze box in the lobby and in the line. And Interesting. <laughs> it's going to be nuts. Interesting. <laughs> and is that something that you really wanted to bring to this program of, of having just a theatrical experience of stuff that's beyond just the text of the screen? You have actual interactions or just, well, I wouldn't say a pre-show, but if something to bring in more of a context of yeah. like why we're all together and watching this. Exactly. I do think that, um, in a lot of ways, Netflix and the screening services and the giant size of everyone's TV have kind of changed what cinemas are for. Yeah. I think that what cinema is for is exactly what you guys were talking about in your uh, chat beforehand, which is that we watch movie, we go to the movies now for that audience experience, for the sense of being in a community, for the sense of um, what I was talking about with my dissertation, for the sense of like sharing a space and an ethic and a sensibility for the whatever the length of this movie is. Yeah. Um, 
whether it's like Ninja Turtles and like um, remembering what it was to be at your first sleepover or with Gremlins, like the pre-show for Gremlins was literally me in like one of those furry suits explaining the history of what a Gremlin is because there is like a hundred year going back to World War II when soldiers were dealing with these rickety planes and like coming up with a myth that explains why this ricketiness is happening. Um, straight up through like Looney Tunes to like um, the Twilight Zone, right up until Baby Yoda fiddling with the switch yeah. of the the Mandalorian's ship, right? So um, one of my jobs, the reason my PhD even matters is like I want to be able to use a facility with popular culture in the long game, straight yeah. up to the Shakespeare to now to say like the stories we tell each other are not just disposable, they come from a long history. They have like a... Uh, they have like a history attached to them. They have like a, a way to understand them that has a very long lens. Yeah. And it's not from an aspect of nostalgia. It's more of an aspect of what was happening at culture at the time that makes this relevant. And I feel the more far removed we are from it, the, the kind of narrow understanding we can have of it. So imagine, you know, something like Joker, we can like maybe in, in later in life, people will respect it for a different reason. But for right now in the context of it being made and its aesthetic is just more copied from uh, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, the Scorsese 1970s, 80s, gritty New York aesthetic yeah. that, that uh, like film nerds like me would be just so angry about because why are you putting it in this context? Why are you trying to contextualize this now? Why can't you just make this more about now? Because yeah. you're trying to relate to, to, like problems that are now to this aspect of what it would be like back then. Yeah, there's a, it is funny the things we get to be mad about in popular culture, right? Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think that anger is always useful in diagnosing what's going on. And I think that the retroness of Joker has something to tell us too. Like there is a way in making that shows, choice that Todd Phillips is suggesting um, something back then is in dialogue with something now. But it is funny watching what people get mad about. Like even just now, I was just looking at Twitter and everyone's mad about how Harley Quinn is not sexy in Bird of Prey, Birds of Prey. She doesn't need to be. But the funny <laughs> thing to me is all these nerds are posting pictures of her in Suicide Squad. I mean, like, look at how sexy she was here. And it's like, you guys complained the whole time <laughs> when that movie came out that that costume was not sexy. And now it's like the icon of sexiness. So it's like, there because is they, a way. They've had like four Halloweens to get over that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they do. That's what interests me is like. Um, actually, the the word Baroque literally comes from uh, Barocco, which is a Portuguese word. Of, uh, when a when a pearl is asymmetrical, it means that the grit that the the oyster was using was asymmetrical, and it a Barocco just means something that's been covered over and over again until it's smooth inside the oyster. Oh. And that's like what Harley Quinn has become. Like yeah. we just keep working on something until it's smooth to the touch and it becomes kind of part of us. And that that's really all culture does. Like culture is actually. As a word, it's a metaphor. Yeah. A culture is like something you grew in a Petri dish, right? <laughs> so um, I don't know what kind of long game work Joker has to do in culture yet. I, it's not a film that particularly speaks to me because it yeah. does speak so much out of a sort of a hetero male white experience. Yeah. Um, the fact that it, so many people responded to it, though, is not something that I think we should discount, right? I know, but but if you took away the whole Joker aspect, the whole DC of it, it just, it, it, to me, it felt very, um, how, how would I say, cliched, white, white, angry white male descent yeah. into madness, mental health um, stories that 
I'm used to seeing. I mean, from but my that is also, I mean, as much as I agree, like, I can't believe you're putting me on the defense for Joker, but like, <laughs> comic books do <laughs> I that, don't right? Mean like, to. I don't comic books pulp things. That's what yeah. comic books do. They sort of mulch things down for us. Like, I mean, I grew up in the 80s when. I knew everything that happened in The Godfather because of The Simpsons, right? Like that in that I've <laughs> talked about that before where I'm so used to seeing it within culture um, that stuff gets ruined for me. I can't watch The Shining because The Simpsons, because yeah. there are so many aspects of it that get taken from it, put into other contexts within culture and so far removed from what it's supposed to do that it has no effect on me. But that's that oystering thing again, right? Like yeah. I'm fascinated by the way... Um, Whenever something sublime happens to humans, the kitsch always immediately swells in around it. Like yeah. when you go to uh, Niagara Falls, like whenever you go to the, one of these beautiful sites, around it you will find the tackiest Clifton souvenir Hill. stores, and like, and that's because that's how humans respond to things that are too much. Right? We feel like we have to digest them. Um, so Godfather's too much. The Shining's too much. What do you do with that? You parody it. You kitschify it. You reference it to death. Yeah. Um, the Joker is kind of doing that, I think, as like a, a text. Hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. It's also, it doesn't no, mean it's good, right? No, like, no, but that's an interesting way of looking at it because, I mean, I also did my uh, undergraduate at York in humanities. It's called Culture and Expression, which also touched a lot about cultural studies hmm. and semiology and all that stuff. And it, for me, I do enjoy that idea of kitsch. And to me, cats kind of felt like hmm. kitsch mm-hmm. in a way, but- in that aspect of there are all these decisions that went so wrong and who, who trusted Tom Hooper, (laughs) a guy who has really done dramas and for the last three films has done close up after close up after close up into these engrossed spaces that have nothing to, which removes you from any emotionality. Well, the one, Um, the film you guys didn't mention is Les Mis, Mis, right? Well, Eric didn't mention Les Mis. I was going to mention Les Mis. (laughs) And to be honest, I think Russell Crowe did a better job than Hugh Jackman in that film because Hugh felt restricted. Well, Hugh felt restricted. And sorry, I'm getting off topic on that. Jennifer Hudson's great in Cats. That's true. I think a lot of decisions in Cats are fascinating ones. Yes. I mean, Cats is a perfect example. Like you made fun of me for mentioning T.S. Eliot earlier. T.S. Eliot wrote the lyrics for Cats. Oh, I know. Right? Like one of the greatest poets, I mean, obviously his politics are horrific, but like there's no denying that at a sonic level, uh, Old Possum's book for Practical Cats is like a, a feat of like simple poetry mechanics. And that's again, like when something amazing happens in culture, we tend to break it down and mulch it. And that's what yeah. Cats is to me. Like a bunch of very talented people doing very weird. <laughs> yes, exactly. And what was funny was um, in January, the Criterion Channel had the 70 sci-fi thing and I'd never seen Lo- Logan's run. And oh. A, and apparently, uh, have you seen Logan's oh, run? Oh yes, I've almost programmed it a few times now. Uh, do you recall what happens when Michael York and I forget uh, the, 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 um, the female's name? Uh, oh, you're talking about the scene where they meet the old man yes. and he quotes, uh, oh. McCavity, he, uh, he quotes <laughs> a couple of other ones. And to be honest, I was taken aback by thinking, wait a second. So cats also exist in that dystopian universe. I mean, it would have to. It's probably the cause of that dystopian universe. <laughs> I mean, there are cats all over Congress. It only explains yeah. it. I mean, what happened is the, the movie Cats came out and then the people in Logan's Run were like, fuck this. Like, Everybody no lives till yeah. 30. No, fuck yeah. 
no one in cats is under 30. So obviously the problem is turning 30. So everybody dies. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so going back to, to writers, you touched on Milton and I remember you telling me that you do this podcast on Paradise Lost. I do. Yes. It's called The Devil's Party. Um, the Devil's Party is a phrase that comes from William Blake, one of the most famous readers and artists and interpreters of Milton, uh, who said that Milton is of the devil's party and does not know it. Um, by which he meant that Paradise Lost is a text that is ostensibly about um, Adam and Eve, but it is told, the story of the Christian fall, as basically focalized through Satan. Um, Satan is basically its kind of protagonist, and the question of whether or not he is the text's protagonist is the big question when you're reading Paradise Lost. Um, I wrote one of my dissertation chapters about it, and it's now the basis for like a queer YA story that I'm doing. Um, so I, I just, it's basically, the podcast is like a slow walkthrough of the poem because it's a very difficult poem, but sort yeah. of by design. Um, and I just wanted to go through it and explain it to people who didn't necessarily have a chance to understand it. And also one of the big problems with Milton's scholarship is because of the amount of learning it requires to be a reader of Milton. He's not like Shakespeare. He was... Literally, his job in the government was to read every language. He's one of the most learned men in English literature. Um, so you need someone who knows that stuff. But by the nature of that, it tends to be a quite conservative field. Yeah. Um, it tends to be dominated by these 80-year-old men who read Hebrew and Latin and have the poem memorized. And if you say anything to them, they say, well, that contradicts this line, um, which is a problem because Milton is a very queer poet. Um, and particularly about gender, he's a fascinating figure. He was a, his nickname in uh, university was the Lady of Christ Church. He uh, cultivated a quite feminine aesthetic at a moment when that was very controversial. Um, and his poetry reflects that. His angels are genderless beings. They can, he says, uh, both sexes assume or neither. So I just wanted to provide a queer reading of the text at an accessible level for people who otherwise don't have that. So I have a friend uh, who... It just recently, a couple of weeks ago, there was this seven-year cycle of reading the Talmud that just finished. So this friend is doing a queer reading of Daf Yomi, which is page a day, what it what it means in Hebrew, and reading the the text as if coming from that queer perspective of saying maybe the Talmud, maybe these rabbis are very uh, talking about ableism, talking about gender, talking about social norms, talking about you know respect over uh, over belief and all that stuff. Which, which is really interesting. And, and I really do appreciate that perspective as somebody who, you know, went through Jewish day school, never really attached himself to a lot of the, <laughs> uh, a lot of the Jewish stuff because I'm terrible at languages. And I never got a chance to learn the Talmud or the Mishnah because I just, it just wasn't my <laughs> right. thing. I wasn't into it. Yeah. Uh, Milton is that too. I mean, he was Christian obviously, but um, he was also very much a Hebraist. He read Hebrew uh, he made quite a study of every language he could get his hands on, literally until he lost his eyesight. Um, and he's very unafraid because of that learning to be quite audacious in his interpretation. So even in writing this, what basically is the epic length fanfic about the Bible, he's not afraid to be, there's a scene where Raphael blushes at the idea of like angel on angel sex. Like um, Eve is his great, triumph as a poet she's the most fascinating figure in the poem he's a misogynist at the worst in the worst kind of ways as a poet but he can't help but create these fascinating female figures 
Uh, no one who reads Eve can help but being sort of seduced by her logic and her yeah. the beauty of her thought. Whereas Adam is just like this idiot golden retriever. Like there's nothing, <laughs> no one is intellectually compelled by Adam. She looks at him and is like, I'm more beautiful and smarter than him. And she's right. So so how does Milton inspire your your writing prose or just like your, your perspective of how you write? Um, what I love about Milton is he's very much a sonic poet. In fact, sometimes because he literally was blind, he literally dictated the poems to his daughters uh, when he wrote them. So sometimes when you get lost in the meaning of them, you just have to say them out loud and it kind of unlocks like a magic spell. Um, He has, no one sounds quite like he does. When you think of what the voice of God sounds like, you almost always think of it in Miltonic terms. He kind of invents, the romantics are obsessed with him. So Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and Shelley are all trying to be Milton. Um, so even the way we think of what poetry sounds like is inflected by him. But I'm envious of that audacity. I'm envious of that willingness to sort of mulch Christianity and be like, well, screw it. Like, I want it to sound like this. And like, I think this part is about this. And maybe maybe the Pope has these takes on it. But what, what would I care what the Pope says? The Pope yeah. didn't read it properly. The Pope <laughs> didn't read it in Hebrew. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that to me is the compelling part. Um I read Paradise Lost when I was 14. Really, I had no idea what it was saying. I remember being the dork at summer camp with a copy of Paradise Lost. The scene, I remember distinctly sitting on the bleachers while everyone was playing. This is like so performative, right? Like the goth kid, like everyone was playing basketball and I was reading book six of Paradise Lost, which is the war in heaven. And Satan's bringing his, he's invented cannons. (laughs) And I remember that day clear as a bell because... Milton had the same thing as I did. He inherited this like mess of Christianity and didn't know what to do with it. And he just made it his own. And that's what I admire about him. Yeah. And so then how do you relate it to, you know, you you just spoke on this queer YA novel that you're writing. Right. You said you're also writing for Marvel. So now, so now let's go more into that. Um, well, as of yesterday, so whenever this podcast comes out, we will have announced it. I've just sold a graphic novel to Harper teen called Apocrypha. Um, which is, uh, it's the cosmology of Paradise Lost as a queer YA story. <laughs> so it's about two teens, one of whom um, one of whom has a guardian angel, one of whom is currently possessed by a demon, uh, who are now embroiled in, like, because of these things, embroiled in sort of a cosmic war. Um, and uh, they are told there is one thing they have to do, and they gradually start to realize, first of all, they have these queer experiences that they need to come to terms with, but also that, the thing that is right and the thing that God is telling them to do are different things. So what does that mean? And it's obviously like a way for me to wrestle with my own queerness and my own coming out um, and the experiences of a lot of people I know. There's a lot of gender queer elements in there that are being drawn out of Paradise Lost. Um, but there's that. Um, and the Marvel stuff, I'm currently working on a Hulkling book with Chip Zdarsky for the crossover this summer, uh, Empire, which is about um, Hulkling is the crown prince of the Cree and the Skrull, and he's now invading Earth and, for and, reasons. Well, okay, <laughs> well, here's the thing. We, we touched on this before recording. I really have not been back into comic books for a while. It's Now, me being an idiot, is Hulkling, you know, related to Hulk, or is that no. just a whole different thing? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Forgive uh, me. I'm stupid no, it's, at this. It's a, you are meant to think he is. Uh, when Young Avengers debuted, Alan Heinberg debuted a squad of Young Avengers, each of whom was a legacy character and each of whom was designed to seem like they were the legacy of a different character. Gotcha. So Hulkling is not at all related to the Hulk 
Asgardian was not at all related to Thor. Iron Lad was not at all related to Iron Man. Each of them was the scion of a different Avenger. So Iron Lad was actually Kang the Conqueror. Asgardian is actually the son of the Scarlet Witch. And Hulkling is the son of Captain Marvel. Gotcha. Um, so if you've seen the Captain Marvel movie, you've seen the Skrulls in that and the Kree in that. The comic book history is a little different, but basically he's um, the heir to both empires. And now Marvel has decided he's old enough and it's time to inherit his throne. Um, so this crossover this summer is about what that means for him. Um, he's facing uh, a very old Marvel foe, the Kotati, who are the plant species who once cultivated the blue area of the moon where the Watcher lives and where yeah. the phoenix died a long time ago. Um, so that's where we start. And my job with Chip was just to get him to a place where he could inherit that throne. And when I looked at it, I was like, well, obviously, again, based on my history, I was like, <laughs> obviously this is the only place to go here is Shakespeare. Um, so <laughs> I just, he's Prince Hal, right? He's the kid who's been goofing off forever, um, who now realizes he has to become Henry V. Yes. Um, and the the arc of Prince Hal is being the the wastrel, who's just like the, the, the waggish youth who realizes he has to reject the things that he had brought him all this joy so that he so, can become a king. So is he going to be the Timothy Chalamet uh, in the king of the Marvel <laughs> Comics universe? He, he doesn't have a Chalamet energy. That's what's fascinating to me about Hulkling as a character. He's very much, like I just talked about Adam being a golden retriever. Hulkling is a golden retriever. His boyfriend, Wiccan, is more of the Timothy Sh If you were casting Wiccan, yeah. you'd be reaching for Chalamet or like Troy Sivan. Like, gotcha. I, I, did a, I once did a tweet that went kind of like big where I talked about um, being obsessed with anxious soft goths and their enormous golden retriever boyfriends. Uh, Eve in Paradise Lost is an anxious soft goth. Wiccan is an anxious soft goth. Um, if you ever watched The O.C.? Nope, never did. <laughs> so Alan Heinberg, who created The Young Avengers, actually also then created, well, in reverse order, actually. I don't even know. But the the leads of The O.C. are clearly meant to w be mirrored by Wiccan and Hulkling. Ah, so Hulkling is very okay. much like a Seth Ryan, like punch first, ask yep. questions later um, kind of character. So it's fun putting him in a position against which he has no desire for power. He has no ambition to be a king what would tempt him into the ethical responsibilities of kingship. Yeah. Um, and Hal is a great place to reach. Henry is a great place to reach uh, for that. Shakespeare is a great, Shakespeare is yeah. fascinated by that too. Hamlet is not off base No, it's here. not. <laughs> no, so, uh, but how much uh, um, also from your real life, like you're wrestling with your queerness and all, and all these different identities. Not anymore, like, thankfully. You know, good. I'm 35. Yeah. <laughs> like how much of that is influenced within the work that you've been trying to do, whether it's out in culture and you're doing Jumpster Raccoon or you and your writing? Um, sorry, say that again. In, in terms of, oh man, I wish I could just stop this, play it back and then re-record <laughs> from that spot. Um, it, how much does queerness inflect my work? Yes. So it, all it, it. like, like all, all of your life experience reflected within, you know, the stuff that you do within culture. I think it's one of the most important, um, parts of my work is making sure that even at the dumpster raccoon screenings, even at that cat screening, um, especially in 2020 with, um, I mean, in Toronto, we're dealing with the fact the library is now holding these anti-trans events, right? Yes. Um, as a gay person, you can't donate blood. Um, I wrote a piece about the Bruce MacArthur murders and how MacArthur basically existed in a space that the police created for him. So I do think my job as a cultural critic is to point out this marginalization 
and to always foreground space for my community. Um, I used to work with the Glad Day Bookshop, which is the oldest surviving LGBT bookstore uh, in the world. Um, and just moving through that space teaches you so much about how disenfranchised and how marginalized uh, our community has been, and in many ways how much privilege I've had to be able to even go to school and get a PhD, right? Like, yeah. that's not something... Gatekeeping keeps a lot of queer people from doing that because you need money, and the first thing that happens when you come out is your parents cut you off, right? Yeah. So um, it is... I try to make sure there's a queer element to all my work. And, I mean, in some ways that's subconscious. Like, it'll always be there no matter what I do. But um, it's something I do think is very important. Yeah. Although I don't uh, identify as a, you know, cis het, because for me I still can't wrap my head around it properly mm -hmm. in terms of how would I really label myself, how is it that um, uh, people who don't identify as queer can come into those spaces and also appreciate that as well? Because I, I feel that a lot of people who are again, from my perspective, I might be totally off on this. Those that enjoy uh, RuPaul's Drag Race or just drag in general um, has been has become not just more mainstream uh, in, you know, just straight white Hess culture, mm -hmm. but, have, but has been more embraced within the last couple, like year or two, that just feels more commonplace than anything. Yeah. Um, I think that it was actually, this takes us right back to the beginning. Uh, there is a way when you think of sort of secularism as unmarked, there is a way that the cishet male experience is considered unmarked. Um, it seems like the default. It's a default, yeah. yeah that that it, that's weirdness can actually be quite difficult for people to even perceive the edges of, right? Like even when I was, <laughs> I was just sending back page notes for the Marvel comic and, um, which is great. I mean, our artist is amazing on it, but I had to send a note that made me feel like a complete pervert where I was like, so it was me in the email chain and like five straight guys. And I was like, so do you all shave your armpits? Like why are straight superheroes always depicted with these shaved pits? And it's like the, the reason is because the male body is not thought about as like something of interest or of attention in, in a Marvel comic. So I, I feel like a lot of that is also just taken from, you know, statues of it. Yeah. Cause, cause it, it's like these hairless beings with the exception, <laughs> maybe the pubic area. That's right. about it. You know, There's the story of Ruskin fainting on his wedding night. Cause his wife had pubic hair. No, and he had no, he, he's an art historian. Uh, and he had no idea that women actually had pubic hair. Cause he only learned about the female body from studying art. <laughs> oh, when your entire worldview is just kind of shaped from that one yeah. perspective, it just blows your mind. But that's, that's the cishet experience, right? Yeah. Like women don't, why would women have body hair? And it's like, just pointing out that nothing is default and nothing is unmarked is so much of the work that I think needs doing. Yeah. Um, even for the Dumpster Raccoon series where I'm just like, this is a queer space at the beginning. And like having that moment where an audience member who maybe isn't queer is like, oh yeah, like what does it mean the fact that I don't think about this and yeah. that I never have to worry about this and I don't have to worry that the person on stage is about to say something deeply homophobic or something. Um, which happens, right? Like all the time. So that work is worth doing to me and just pointing out that um, there is no such thing as a default. There's just the person who's always gotten to speak so far is important work to me. Yeah, no, that's great. So then to kind of sum up, you know, after everything we talked about, how are you making this year, your year? You, you know, just signing a book, you got the comic, but yeah. how, how are you making this year? Um, I've got the comics we talked about. I've got a World War II comic that I'm doing for Boom. Ooh, um, interesting. So what, what's, uh, what's, what's that? It's called, uh, it's a, an anthology series called Scene Marginalized Trailblazers. Um, 
So every every volume is about a different person who's been forgotten by history that should not have been forgotten by history. So it's drunk history, but without the drunkenness. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hopefully my artist isn't drunk, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's the it's just like here's sixty pages about a person who you don't know about that you should know about. So mine is about um, a World War II uh, revolutionary living in Amsterdam who. Uh, was gay and who knew as soon as the Nazis invaded that uh, the the Dutch invasion was basically functionally peaceful. Um, uh, they Until like 43, 44. Yeah, yeah, so he's one of the first people who was like, this is going to be a problem. Um, he forged documents for Jewish people. Um, uh, he was an artist, so he knew how to forge things. But then when he realized they were being checked against the Amsterdam records, he and a bunch of gays got in costume uniforms snuck into the Amsterdam records office and blew it up. Uh, (laughs) When they caught him, he refused to reveal who his allies were. And his last words in front of the firing squad were tell them I was gay and that gays are no cowards. Um, So I'm writing about him who I think is, and because of, because he was gay, Dutch history kind of erased him. His, his accomplishments were given to someone else. Really? Um, So it's like this attempt to recoup this lost person. Uh, Willem Arondeus was his name. Um, I'm doing the dumpster raccoon stuff. I'm writing the, all those comics. I'm writing a book. Um, it's been a, it's going to be a very busy year. I'm <laughs> stressed just thinking about it. Yeah. No, but that sounds amazing. I mean, I mean going from, you know, PhD cultural critic to, you know, op- opening up all these queer spaces and writing about queer experiences. I, I like for me again, coming from a, I don't know how to properly label myself other than cis head at this point. Uh-huh. Um, I want to try and champion that, but questioning I, is available. One of the cues yeah. is a, a questioning. You could question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not just like questioning myself, but just more of, I, I want to appreciate it, but I don't know how without seeming like a giant idiot. There is a terrible misconception that in order to be queer, you need a master's degree. Uh, and I do think, I do think, I do think we should get away from that. Um, that a person has the space to figure themselves out. Uh, and you don't need to, you know, you don't, you shouldn't need a glossary of terms to figure yourself out, but you know, it's a big tent. That's the point of adding all, you're always like, why are there so many acronyms? It's like, because we're, we're trying to make space for as many people as we can. Yeah. Um, God, like how many words do straight people have for their different family members? If you can figure out what a first cousin once removed is, you can figure out what intersex means. And to be honest, I don't even know what a first cousin once removed (laughs) is. I know I have some for sure, but it's like a, it's a generational thing, actually. So your first cousin once removed, child will be your second cousin. <laughs> okay, my, my, you know, I'm just going to kind of leave it at that and, yeah. <laughs> and figure that out later. I'll take a map, family yeah. tree, and figure that out. Anyway, Anthony, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. 